Episode 110, Humanity's Spiritual Destiny and the 100-Year Starship. NASA has dared and accomplished many mighty things. Not a NASA project, but to reach the stars in 100 years is just as mighty. The 100-year Starship project aims to get humanity to travel to the stars in 100 years' time. It started in 2012, headed by Dr. Mae Jemison, the first woman of colour to fly into space in 1992. Jason Bott has several eclectic interests. He's also the creative and editorial manager for the 100-year Starship project. In a wide-ranging discussion in Baku during IAC 2023, we discussed the role of science fiction, mysticism and spirituality in humanity's distant future. Listen or watch if you're on YouTube to the end for a clip of Dr. May Jameson talking about the 100-year Starship Manifesto. Jason Batt. Yes. Great to meet you here at IAC in Baku. Fascinating background that you have. You are a mythologist, philosopher, writer, designer, applied science fiction, and a professional dungeon master. So, just tell me, in all of that, what, what's your day job right now? Day job is I work with a 100-year starship, uh, work with Dr. Mae Jemison, primarily uh, working on several of her projects and organizations. Um, work with her on 100-year starship. Signal Hill Road Publishing is an organization, too, that we have started, or a publishing company that we've started, um, as well as supporting her with the Dorothy uh, Mae Jemison Foundation and the Jemison Group. So that's primarily my day job work um, with 100 Year Starship being the primary. And that's actually why I'm here at mm-hmm. IAC is representing 100 Year Starship. Oh, right. And uh, Dr. Mae Jemison. Yes. She is, correct me if I'm wrong, the very first black female American astronaut? She's actually the first woman of color in space, is the way that we term it. So um, Dr. Mae Jemison went up on Endeavor. Mm -hmm. Um, She was the first woman of color in space, and uh, she has quite a long list, just like you laid mine. Um, Her list is everything from medical doctor to dancer to um, writer to entrepreneur, um, quite an accomplished, accomplished individual as well. So, and there's one other thing, maybe you know a bit more about which you can share with us, the Star Trek connection. She is, yes. So, uh, Dr. May is actually the first individual who's actually ever traveled into space to appear on Star Trek. Now, since then, there have been people that have actually been on Star Trek that have gone into space. Most recently, William Shatner um, had the opportunity to travel to space. Mm -hmm. Uh, But Dr. Mae Jemison did have the opportunity, going back um, quite some time to a fabulous episode of Star Trek Next Generation. Uh, She is uh, really good friends with LeVar Burton. LeVar was directing the episode. Um, And this was the episode, in fact, where uh, we get the two Rikers, where... 
Riker was split in the transporter accident, and Dr. May appears as an extra in the engineering unit, and so, um, or in the engineering department. Um, and so she was there, and it was fabulous, yeah, it was amazing. And, and that is a, a real tangible connection yes. between science fiction and science fact. Yes. You know, when science, Star Trek first came out, of course, um, there uh, weren't any, well, I suppose Yuri Gagarin had been up to space, so that's yeah. the concept of human spaceflight, but the idea of somebody who's been to space appearing in Star Trek is oh, just yeah. fascinating. And that shows um, a strong connection between science fiction and science. Yeah. That's another area of your interest. Um, you, you use the term a applied science fiction. What does that mean in practice? I look at applied science fiction, well one, I think a lot of what's happening here at IAC is looked at from a very broad perspective to be considered applied science fiction. If you go back um, all the way to Jules Verne, Jules Verne said in From the Moon to the Earth that despite people's opinion, and I'm, and I'm going to mess up the quote, but mm -hmm. a paraphrased version of it is, despite the critics, mm -hmm. humans will one day travel to the moon, to the planets, and to the stars themselves as easily as people travel from Liverpool to New York. And in that, he describes this great adventure of actually going from the Earth to the moon in a rocket ship, getting out and exploring. It would be decades, nearly a century later, that we would actually land on the moon. Science fiction often predates science. Now, not always. Mm -hmm. um, there have been quite a number of times where science has surprised, and engineering has surprised, mm -hmm. but often science fiction leads the way. Science fiction doesn't always get it right. Um, mm -hmm. I look at science fiction as a great tool for futurist contemplation, right. looking at it as a laboratory. You can do things in science fiction that would be absolutely illegal to do in real life. Uh, you can do great experiments there. You can literally take things to their utmost end. For example, with 100-year starship, we have a great thing that we call the Canopus Award. The Canopus Award is designed to award excellence in interstellar writing. And we believe that interstellar writing includes fiction and nonfiction, and we want to celebrate that every year. So we focus on works in that genre. And often those works are exploring what is it going to be like when we actually do travel to another star. Um, some of those are dystopian in, in nature. Some of them are showing some of the extremes of our humanity and certain issues right now. Um, you've got novels out there that show what happens if we go out there with a colonial mindset, what happens if we go out there with a capitalistic mindset. So they are able to take where we are now mm -hmm. and extrapolate from where we are here and say, okay, what happens if we travel to the stars with these conditions in place? Mm -hmm. And it becomes an opportunity for us to explore. And so in my mind, I believe that's the beginning of applied science fiction. Then to work backwards and say, okay, can we take the insights from science fiction and begin to have them inform our decisions at this moment? Mm -hmm. How do we look and consider our decisions at this very moment through that lens. Doesn't mean that we necessarily assume that that is the direct path. Never once has science fiction ever gone 
the exact path right. It never does. In fact, often when it does predict something, it never gets it exactly right. Um, when William Gibson predicted uh, hacking the web and you know cyber, you know arts and all this other stuff, it didn't look at all in his novels the way it does right now. Uh, the way that Orson Scott Card showed the World Wide Web and web browsers way back in the 70s was really cool, but it was very 3D and it's kind of just starting to get that way with virtual reality and AR, but it's taken a completely different arc. But nonetheless, it still informs us now. And that's been the um, a common feature between science fiction and science fact. They quite often uh, reinforce each other, yes. the way you described it. Um, and sometimes, and there's, there's always a connection between the two. And I've been really impressed at learning about the fact that people like H.G. Um, Wells, uh, Werner von Braun, um, Robert Goddard, they were all, and they say this, influenced by Jules Verne. Yeah. And Jules Verne seems to be the starting point for the, certainly the sort of post-industrial, uh, maybe it was the Industrial Revolution that made Jules Verne think about um, the practical usage of the, the new technology, although what he was writing was fiction. Yeah. There's a lot of uh, factual and mathematical calculations in his stories. Um, and that's why I was interested in the um, relationship between what, um, so what used to be science fiction, what today is science fact. Right. So, currently, uh, this 100 years starship program is um, for us right now perhaps a bit of science fiction but just like in the past going to the moon or going into space um, no longer science fiction just tell us just summarize what the objectives of the 100 years uh, starship program are and where are you with that program right now so your starship uh, originally began as a overall project and initiative coming out of NASA and DARPA about 12 years ago. NASA and DARPA said we need to uh, create an initiative that explores interstellar travel and they put out requests for proposals. At that time, uh, Dr. Mae Jemison along with Lyris Allman wrote a proposal um, that they called an inclusive audacious journey. Um, and they submitted it, it was through the Dorothy Jemison Foundation. That was actually the winning proposal. That proposal earned the initial seed funding, um, an initial seed funding, uh, 100 Year Starship is self-funded at this point. Um, and 100 Year Starship operates on this goal. We are working and our mission is to develop the capability for manned interstellar travel within 100 years. So, first thing that I always try and correct is we are not building a starship. We are not launching a starship. I'm not trying to get to Alpha Centauri within 100 years. The goal is from the start of the mission, which would have been exactly now 11 years ago, we had a 100-year clock starting to develop the capability. And when we say capability, immediately everybody goes to propulsion. And propulsion is a large part of it. Because, obviously, it's one thing to go from here to the moon, and even another thing from here to Mars. Mm -hmm. We've done that. We've gone rovers. We now have 
robotic probes that we have done. So humanity has traveled by proxy all the way now past Pluto, and we're now into interstellar space. Mm -hmm. But at the speed that Voyager is traveling right now, um, for example, Voyager launched in the 70s, okay? If you were to take the distance, our nearest star is Alpha Centauri, okay? Or Proxima Centauri, it's a three-star system, okay? Say you were to put, transpose that and put the sun, our sun, our solar system on LA, okay? And you're to put Alpha Centauri on the other side of the continental US. Um, I'm an American, I've got to work with that map. Um, I wish I could extrapolate it out to the UK or to Europe. Um, but you were to put the other one on the other side of the continental U.S. in Washington, D.C. You put Alpha Centauri in Washington, D.C., mm -hmm. okay? As of right now, in all the time that Voyager has been traveling, mm -hmm. Voyager would literally have only gone just barely outside of the L.A. borders. Like, it is a long trip. Interstellar. That's based on the current... Um, chemical combustion Correct. technology. Exactly. So I appreciate that, and you're right, propulsion is going to be a, a big uh, big issue. But in terms of where the project is right now, um, how many people are working on it? You've got um, Dr. May Jameson, as you said, you've got the funding for it. Um, what are the milestones? That, I don't know if you can say that have been achieved already, and what do you hope to achieve right. in the next uh, yeah. foreseeable future, in our lifetimes? Yeah. Um, so a couple things. One, um, when I say uh, self-funded, well, I mean, we're always out there seeking funding. We're always looking for memberships. We're always looking for people to come and support. So um, I don't want to say, oh, hey, we've got the funding. I mean, if any of your listeners, hey, want to support membership. Mm -hmm. um, so we operate under a nonprofit. Right. So um, one of the funding streams would be through membership? Yes, we ah, do have okay. memberships. So yeah. If people are interested, I'll include a link to the website. Yeah, absolutely. Mm -hmm. Wonderyss.org. Mm -hmm. uh, the people who work on it are varied. Um, we have a very um, tight, small staff. We have a large um, group of associate individuals that work. Um, everyone from uh, Dr. Carl Asplund, who is uh, the associate head of the honors program at the University of Rhode Island, um, who's actually, his background is in textiles. Uh, Dr. Ronke Olabisi from University of California, mm -hmm. um, whose uh, focus is on bone growth and biomedical. Um, so we have quite a large number of associate people working in various fields and various areas. Um, Dr. Sonia Smith, who works in energy management. Um, the, the number of people that are connected on this are quite significant. Uh, so we host uh, various events. One of the big ones that we have is Nexus Nairobi. Uh, Nexus Nairobi is what we call where space, purpose, and culture collide. Because and earlier, this is Nairobi in Kenya. Nairobi, mm -hmm. Kenya. Right. Because we believe that getting to another star is not going to just be a US effort, or just a UK, or just a EU effort. Mm -hmm. It's going to take all of humanity. And it's important that we engage the widest swath of humanity, mm -hmm. that we embrace as many people as possible. So we first held our last event in Nairobi last year. Mm -hmm. We held it uh, there in Kenya. Uh, was really warmly received. Mm -hmm. And our intent is to make sure that we are bringing a very diverse field of disciplines. Because like I said, propulsion is a big part of it, but it's not just discipline. It's um, things such as medical, life support, mm -hmm. culture, 
um, psychology, sociology, education, religion, everything that you need to do to humanly get to another star mm -hmm. is really what you need to do to survive here. And one of the things that we believe is if we can solve it for the journey there, it helps us solve it for here. Uh, one of our taglines is uh, footprints on earth, pathways to the stars, mm -hmm. that what we do has to improve life here on earth. And so that's one of the things and at that gathering is where we have technical tracks, we have plenary, we bring people together, um, mm -hmm. large number of different groups come together to discuss and navigate this and then they work throughout the year and then they come back and they report on, hey, this is where we are and this is where we've gone. And it does sound a very um, comprehensive and um, collaborative project. Yes, very, very much. Nationally within US, but internationally. Um, well, it's just going back to two things you said. You mentioned it had its roots in DARPA, which is the um, defense... Um, defense Advanced Research Project um, agency. agency, I believe. I'm not sure. I think that's the correct acronym. And I was just curious, because it's the defense element, um, I mean, naturally, I quite like this forward-looking project. It just seems a very unusual thing to have its roots in an organization like that. And the kind of project and the goals you have, these long terms, you know, yeah. we will never achieve this in our, in our lifetimes, they are inherently difficult to get off the ground, to get yes. people to believe in them. And I'm just thinking of, you know, um, in the early days, about 20, 30 years ago, people who were doing um, genuine scientific research in, for example, the search for extraterrestrial intelligence or the, yes. the Asgardia, the Space Nation program that exists, Breakthrough, Listen, many others, far into the future looking projects. Many on the outside look at uh, your project and think, bunch of nutters, you never do that. Yeah. You must have had that kind of criticism when you were, and maybe even now, when you were starting out. Uh, we did. Uh, so let me take uh, your question in two parts. The first one is you brought up DARPA. Uh, the fact is, I'm, I'm sure your listeners are watching this on the internet. What a lot of people don't realize is that the internet has its history with DARPA. The internet actually traces its route back to a project called ARPANET. And ARPANET was a funded project that came out of what that was, was the precursor to DARPA. Mm -hmm. um, ARPA, ARPANET. Uh, so DARPA has actually had its hands in projects that do not necessarily have a defense element. So that's the first thing is everybody's like a little bit, well, wait a second, this is military. That's it. We also have no reporting, nothing. We receive the initial funding, mm -hmm. that initial seed funding, but we are completely independent. Yeah. Um, part of it is that the goal of the people who originally conceived this wanted to develop projects that they felt would really push the limits mm -hmm. of innovation and thought. How far can we go? Mm -hmm. And that at that moment, we needed a significant boost to start thinking, like you just said, more than just local space efforts, but what is the furthest we can push to? Yeah, we did, we got to the moon. But to really truly go to another star is an audacious task. And yet, it's actually been the dream of humans from the very moment we looked up 
So this comes back into my mythology degree. It, humans, from the very moment we stepped out of whatever cave, from the moment that we had an opportunity, we looked up at the night sky, mm -hmm. we saw those stars, and we began to tell stories, and we began to wonder what would it be like to travel to go there. Some of the earliest myths, the one that we can trace back to the earliest days, are all stories of traveling there and back to the stars. I had the opportunity two weeks ago to uh, visit the Oglala Lakota Reservation in South Dakota and meet with Dr. Craig Howe and hear the stories of the Lakota and uh, their understanding of the star people and the belief that um, one of their heroes, one of their mythic heroes is this character Starboy or Starman who um, was half Lakotan, half star person. Mm -hmm. That it was actually one of the stars came to Earth, took one of the Lakota women up and they had a child. So from the various time they looked up and they're like, we want to go there. It is baked into our DNA to dream of going there. And so returning now, we realize that, yes, this is audacious, but it is also at the same time, maybe one of the oldest dreams of humanity that we're trying to rekindle and simultaneously achieve. And that word audacious, uh, I think is the right word. I was going to say ambitious, but audacious is, is yeah. much, much better. Uh, when I was younger, I, I would listen to things that you just said, I think, it's a lot of nonsense, yeah. you know. Um, and, and now I realize um, how, in order for you to achieve something, you really have to be audacious. You have to think that, okay, you can't do this now, but in the long term, in a single lifetime, single individual project, you're always reaching for things yeah. which are just outside your reach at the time you plan them. And I'm just thinking about uh, NASA's logo, you know, Dare Mighty Things. Yeah, yeah. And I thought, I remember very clearly when um, uh, Curiosity was landing on Mars and with this really fancy crane uh, landing mechanism and I thought, oh, it's just too complicated, it won't yeah. work. I'm com completely convinced of that and it succeeded of course. Yeah. Same thing with James Webb last year. Oh yeah. The fact that it all worked incredibly accurately. Yes. So not only can we um, dream about these things but it just shows that yeah. we, through our human technology and engineers, space engineers, are in many ways the sort of modern gods who make these things possible. If, when we have routine space travel, maybe even interstellar travel, will that capability, is it possible, and have you dis uh, is this something you're discussing in your dissertation, that Space travel will replace the idea for a religion or the need for religion and mythology that we've, throughout human history we've always had. I have considered that from multiple angles, and there are people that would come to multiple different arguments. I believe very strongly that humans at nature, and this is where I use the term mythology more than religion, we are myth we are people who form mythology. We are constantly doing it. Part of it is the fact that understanding how myth forms. Um, 
myth often forms in those moments of a transcendent experience when we engage into a new environment and we have an experience of wonder and then we begin to start to have to describe it. And um, the language of myth is always the language of metaphor. We're trying to describe something larger than us. As long as there will always be something larger than us, we will always have to use metaphor. And as long as we have to use the language of metaphor, we'll always be operating in the realm of mythological formation. I don't believe we will ever escape our creation of religion. In fact, I think that is actually just part of the nature of what it means to be human. Do I believe that new religions and myths will form? Absolutely. Joseph Campbell points to the moment um, of Earthrise, that photo where we saw the Earth coming up over the horizon of the moon as the moment where our old mythologies began to dissolve and where the new mythologies began to take formation. Not sure what those are right now, mm -hmm. but what happened is we had a brand new image, mm -hmm. a new image that we could collectively see across our world. Since then, you have had an incredible conservation movement form around the Gaia mm -hmm. concept. We all now see people grow up and we see the image of the blue globe. We have this idea of the centralized earth. Um, Frank White um, has put forward and championed the idea of the overview effect through his interviews with astronauts. Not all astronauts have experienced it, um, but some have this experience when they go into space, they look down on the earth and they don't see the borders. It's this very, utilizing the term Rudolf Otto coin, numinous, this um, experience that in other religions would be almost holy, but without a divinity attached to it. This experience of transcendent awe and wonder. And I believe right there, this birthrise, the overview effect. Um, but I also believe right now, what we were talking about earlier, I think even when we're off camera, this fact that a lot of people have not seen the amazing wonder of the night sky because of so much light pollution. And when you're able to escape that, this ability to look up and experience the sense of the one sky, there are still right now moments of transcendent numinosity that humans can experience right now when it comes to space, either looking up or looking down and picturing it via proxy from Earthrise. I don't know what the future religion or mythology is going to be, mm -hmm. but I do believe that these images are the starting ingredients. And what will happen is we will continue to evolve ritual around it. We will continue to evolve artistry around it. The more artistry you get around it, mm -hmm. artists are the beginning of myth. Artists are the caretakers and the holders of it. And myth takes a while, religion takes a while. Thousands of years from now, you'll see it. Um, and, and the way that uh, artists and writers and uh, uh, people of faith can articulate something is uh, uh, something that not engineers and scientists and others can do easily. Just going back to the um, um, Earthrise image, yeah. which has very well documented as being uh, uh, initiated and being responsible for the conservation movement and sustainable use of uh, resources here on Earth. Um, I suspect that's probably one of the, if not the most profound outcomes 
yes. from our activities in space, apart from all the technological benefits that we've accrued as a result. But that's something which is very difficult to articulate and not many people necessarily are aware of that. Yeah. And I think that is more profound than, than the physical, tangible benefits that we see in space. So, in conclusion then, um, I remember, I think it was um, Arthur C. Clarke's uh, Rendezvous with Rama. Oh yes, and, one uh, of my favourites. <laughs> so, maybe you can remind, correct me if I'm wrong, but in there he talks about, um, you know, these days we use uh, Zoom or uh, WhatsApp video calls. He talks about this thing he calls a remote, mm-hmm. because he, when somebody can't be in present uh, at, a, at a distant place, they use this kind of a, I visualize them as a human, a robotic person, yeah. which they program themselves to be in that place and they have a two-way communication link. Um, that, in essence, now is real, because yeah. we can be in two or even more yeah. places at the same time. And I think uh, yeah, another thing that Arthur C. Clarke said was, whenever we uh, encounter technology that's so far advanced, that we think it's like magical. Yes. It's magic. And I think we've, uh, in my lifetime, we've crossed that threshold so many times. The 100-year spaceship project is something which is a magical ambition right now, but I can see now, with my long experience, that it's it's inevitable that we humans will do that. Um, So what... Do you see in the next uh, decade or two or three um, as a tangible outcome for the 100-year spaceship um, that you might like to see in your lifetime? So what I actually, I truly do believe the mission of a 100-year starship, the capability for interstellar within 100 years, and we've got 90 years left, we've already hit the 10% mark. I do believe it's achievable. I do believe that Technology is exponential. Already what's happened in the last 10 years is phenomenal. Uh, We were just at a gathering called Breakthrough Discuss. Uh, New Year's Starship uh, led the discussion on day two. And one of the people that uh, is one of our associates is Dr. Peter Swan, who heads up the International Space Elevator Consortium. Um, And Dr. Swan, even when I sometimes like, man, I wonder if we can do this. He's always the one who's reassuring. He's like, no, this will happen. I'm absolutely convinced of it. Mm-hmm. And I, I look at things, advances right now in materials. I look at advances in propulsion. Um, I just, I look at things that like what Breakthrough Starshot is doing right now, where the intent is to send a nanoprobe to Alpha Centauri, um, so that it is possible that within our lifetime, maybe, hopefully mine, we could actually get data back from first-hand observation um, from a probe um, to Alpha Centauri, that it could actually be done. But then I even look back to what would I like to see in the next decade, or what I see. What I see is really, truly what Dr. May is championing and what she's leading, which is this incredible collaboration. I see collaboration happening at a level that is phenomenal. Uh, what 100 Wines has started out to do is to engage and bring together a diverse set of disciplines and perspectives and ideas 
to achieve that goal. And it is not that we need to point to any single technology and say, okay, have we achieved that? For me, what needs to happen right now is probably the hardest thing. Can we achieve the diversity of disciplines and perspectives in a collaborative, collective environment? And Dr. May and her team are doing that remarkably well. And that is the one thing that I look to now that I say it's happening. And I'm convinced that in the next 10 years, it is only going to grow and develop. And I look towards that as being the foundational element that will guarantee our success of interstellar travel within that 100 years. Um, I'm uh, so impressed that you have pulled up your sleeves and taken on these uh, mighty thing, and I'm sure you will succeed in the end. Uh, Jason Batt, soon to be Dr. Jason Batt, Thank you very much indeed for your time. Thank you very much. This has been an honor. Thank you. Enough to reach them. Once, we relied on the stars to navigate the Earth. Now, we're leaving the Earth to navigate the stars. Humanity and our planet stand at an inflection point. Will we continue on our current path of short-term thinking? A path that appears safe but flirts with stagnation? Or do we come together and push for humanity's next giant leap forward? At 100-Year Starship, we are calling on members of our generations to complete a clear mission. Make the capabilities for human travel to another star a reality within the next 100 years. Because just as past exploration pushed breakthroughs in agriculture, communications, energy, transportation, materials, and medicine, the greatest rewards of interstellar travel will be felt here at home. We believe that pursuing an extraordinary tomorrow will create a better world today. And who participates makes all the difference. Join us on this audacious journey.